God is glorious. And His creation is glorious. And as we think of just the earth there hanging in this vast universe, that's incredible. But more incredible than that, really, is that God would put on flesh and come down to this earth for a cause, to save mankind, to have a relationship with Him in the first place by creating the universe. But, but when man fell into sin, God took it personally. He came down here, He put on flesh, and He saved us from our sins by dying on that cross. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, at this time and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. As you're turning there, I'd like you to imagine with me, if you would, in your mind's eye, God creating everything millenniums ago, and then seeing man really bring sin into the picture, and sending his own son down to die for man's sin. It's almost a story that uh, boggles our imagination, but it's actually what happened. It was uh, an unspeakable gift. And that's what the Bible calls it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Just one verse, verse 15, says, Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. We're going to talk about that gift as we talk about God on earth in flesh. God taking on flesh and coming to this earth. Let's ask the Lord to bless before we do, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we ask Your Lord to bless now our time tonight in Your Word. We do pray that You'd make it profitable. Father, I pray that you'd show us some things about the Incarnation that perhaps we've never thought about. And as a result, we'd appreciate it more. Dear Lord, I pray for those who don't understand the purpose of Christ coming to this earth. Oh, they know the stories historically. They, They have the facts down, the head knowledge, but maybe really don't have Christ in their heart. And Father, it's our prayer that they'd come to that saving knowledge of Him today. We pray and ask it now in His precious name. Amen. I think most of us know what a bucket list is. It's a list that we want to fulfill before we kick the bucket, right? There's a lot of things that I've done that I wanted to do. There are a number of things that are still on my bucket list. There's one thing I'd love to do that I know I'll never get the chance to do. There's only a handful of people who've ever done it. And that is to get in, in outer space and look back at the globe. To actually see the world to be able to look back at it and see it. You know, some astronauts have done that very thing, and they've written about that experience. For example, astronaut James Irvin said that the earth looks like a giant Christmas ornament hanging in utter blackness as he looked back at it. He said it really changes a man to see the world as God sees it. He said it really makes you appreciate God's creation. And then there was... John Glenn, I'm sure you've heard of him. He said, there are no words to describe the experience of being able to look back and and see the earth hanging in in nothingness there. It's suspended by absolutely nothing. There's no words to describe it. And he said, it absolutely strengthens your faith in God. And then there was Neil Armstrong, of course, the first man on the moon. 
And as he looked back at the earth from the moon, he said, suddenly, I, I felt very, very small. You know, I want you to think about God's creation for just a moment. Psalm 19, 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And we can go out on a clear night, we can look at the stars, and, and we can't see even a fraction of them out there, but, but the firmament, the, the, the earth, the, 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 the stars, the moon, the sun, they all declare the glory of God. God is glorious, and His creation is glorious. And as we think of just the earth there hanging in this vast universe, that's incredible. But more incredible than that, really, is that God would put on flesh and come down to this earth for a cause, to save mankind, to have a relationship with Him in the first place by creating the universe. But, but when man fell into sin, God took it personally. He came down here, He put on flesh, and He saved us from our sins by dying on that cross. It started with the incarnation. The Bible calls it His unspeakable gift. And as we talk about that, I want to first of all take a look at the potentate's predetermined providence. And that's a mouthful to say, isn't it? But it's basically talking about God, the all-powerful one, the, the potentate's predetermined providence. God is sovereign, and what takes place doesn't take him by surprise. There are no oops with God. He has a predetermined providence, and the incarnation was part of that. Look, if you would, in the Gospel of Luke, in the second chapter... Here we find the physician, Luke, Dr. Luke, really giving us a physician's report of what took place back there so many years ago in that stable. I believe that stable was actually a cave. I was in the Holy Land back in 1986, and we were in Bethlehem, and, and we got to go to what they believed to be the place where Christ was born. And they say it's one of the more credible things in the Holy Land because the mother of Constantine, around 300 or so, built a, a building over it to mark it. And so to this day, they know that spot, or at least they think they do. But picture, if you would, this stable, the straw, the animals, the odor that comes with, with all of that, obviously. And just picture the setting. It's a very, very humble one. A few years ago, Queen Elizabeth II made a trip over to the U.S. from from Great Britain. When she did, she brought 40,000 pounds of luggage along. Can you imagine that? She was continually changing outfits that she only wore one time. She brought this entourage with her. I mean, she had valets and attendants and all kinds of people to, to come for this, this royal trip. She, they, they bring 40 pints of plasma along. I mean, I could go on and on talking about all this stuff that she brings with her. And they say it cost about $20 million when a dignitary like that makes a trip to the U.S. Well, when Christ, God in flesh, came to the earth, it was a very, very humble setting. And we read about it here in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. It says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger 
because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in their field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. You know, I've often thought about this scenario. I wonder if Joseph and Mary really understood what was going on. I wonder if they understood that this was the predetermined providence of God. God foreordained for all of this to take place. In fact, God told it would. God, God prophesied 700 years before this event in Isaiah 7 and in verse 14. He said, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Simply means God with us. This didn't take God by surprise. He planned it. He prophesied it. It was, it was foreordained in the sovereign mind of God. This baby in that manger, in that stable, was more than a carpenter's son. He was the very son of God. And those tiny hands there that night would do more than one day just hammer in nails and plain wood. They would do miracles, obviously. They would open blind eyes and, and, and unstop deaf ears and even raise dead people. But one day they would stretch out and have nails driven through them as the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. There's a song that we sing at this time of the year entitled, Mary, Did You Know? I like that song. Mary, Did You Know? And, and there's a little chorus and a verse in it that says, The child that you delivered would soon deliver you. Jesus Christ died to deliver Mary and to deliver us as well. Notice a few things about this passage here. I want to point them out. One is in verse 4. It, it mentions the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Did this take God by surprise? That Jesus, of all the places in the world, would be born in an obscure little hamlet, a little village, at that time about nine miles away from a major city known as Jerusalem, but God would choose Bethlehem. Was that any surprise? No, that was foreordained by God. The prophet Micah said it would be that way. In chapter 5 and verse 2, he said, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. That verse tells us that Christ didn't get his beginning in Bethlehem stable. His goings forth were in eternity past, of old, from everlasting. But of all the places, the prophet Micah, hundreds of years earlier, said it's going to be Bethlehem. You know, I wonder if, if Joseph, after the fact, looked at Mary and, and thought of this passage. They, they knew the Old Testament. They studied it as Jewish people. And, and I wonder if he realized, wait a minute, I, I learned this as a kid that, that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. You see, the, the, the lawyers and doctors told Herod it would happen. They knew. They knew where the Messiah would be born. And here it is taking place. Now, how did God get 
Mary and Joseph from Nazareth, which is up north in Galilee, through Samaria, down into Judea, 75 miles south to this place known as Bethlehem. Well, we see the potentate's predetermined providence here. You see, the Bible says in Galatians 4 and verse 4, that when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman. Wait a minute. What do you mean the fullness of time was come? Why do, we, why do we look at that verse and see that expression there? When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman. What's this talking about? Well, it's simply saying that there are some things that God orchestrated. God dovetailed together and meshed them together and made them happen to set the stage for his son to be born at that particular time. Get the setting here because there's some pieces to the puzzle. First of all, we find out that Rome was in control at that time. And, and Rome was taxing the world, but it was especially taxing the Jewish people. You know, if you look at a country of Rome, it looks like a, or Italy, it looks like a boot. A boot. And there is Rome in Italy. And, and I often think of how the world at that time was under the boot of Rome, but especially the Jewish people. Anti-Semitism really prevailed at that time. I mean, the Romans did not like the Jews, and the Jews didn't like the Romans, and the Jews were really underdogs. So you've got this Jewish couple here, Mary and Joseph. By the way, they weren't well off. They didn't live in the posh suburbs somewhere outside of Jerusalem. They lived up in, in Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was kind of the wrong side of the tracks. And they were barely able to make ends meet, but God arranged for them somehow to get from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. It was predetermined. There were a number of things that were in place at that time that, that actually had been falling into place for the past few centuries. I think we're, we're, we're familiar with the fact that, that Jerusalem and, and uh, Judea and the Jews as we know them were conquered by Babylon in about 586, 587 B.C., they were deteriorating so, they were self-destructing, and there was such an erosion and a moral decay going on that they would have self-destructed. But God taught them a lesson, and it wasn't a cruel thing. He took them 700 miles north to Babylon for 70 years and then had them come back. And, of course, that was with the Medo-Persian Empire and Cyrus. So God placed Nebuchadnezzar in the place he wanted them when he wanted them, and then Cyrus comes along afterwards and he releases the Jews. And after God was done with the Medo-Persian Empire, he raised up Alexander the Great and the Grecian Empire. Remember that for just a moment. And when he was done with the Grecian Empire, he raised up the Roman Empire. So you've got all these things in place here. Nebuchadnezzar keeping the Jews from self-destruction morally. Cyrus allowing them to return. What about Alexander the Great and Greece? Well, Greece gave the world this language called the Common Greek Language. We know it as Koine Greek. It was really the, the, the language the New Testament was, was preserved in. And what it did is it united the world with a language that, that really hadn't happened since the Tower of Babel. So here's the world now all speaking this language for the most part. But then Rome comes along. And, and, and they don't adapt Latin. They, they really keep the Greek thing going. But Rome is known for making roads so that Mary and Joseph could get to Nazareth, but more than that. So that when Christ grows up and the gospel is preached, there's these Roman roads where there were first just kind of dirt uh, tracks there, uh, animal trails. Now there's these, these roads where the gospel can spread throughout the world. It, it's amazing how, 
how God writes the score and, and God composes and arranges and, and harmonizes it and organizes it and choreographs it and puts it all together. That's why it says, when the fullness of time was come, when the stage was set, God sent forth His Son made of a woman. God can put all that together. And by the way, He can do that for us as well. Maybe there are things in your life and you go, I don't know why this is happening to me. Well, God does. It doesn't take God by any surprise. There's always, there's always a fullness of time with God. And it's amazing, again, how he, he just puts that all together and He meshes that all together. Now look in verse number 1. Let me show you something else. It says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Caesar Augustus, our month of August, is named after him. We have heard of him. Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar and and the Neros and the Caesars and the Roman emperors of those days. You know, Augustus Caesar was going to tax the Jews more. He was going to tax the world more. And God was going to use that to get Joseph and Mary to, to their hometown or their home area. It was Augustus Caesar perhaps sitting on his throne one day saying, you know, I could stand to build some more buildings and, and uh, show my cloud here, and so I'm going to tax everybody again. But it really wasn't him. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 21.1 that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Like a river of water, like the snaking red river that goes back and forth, God can control the heart of a king. God can control the heart of a world leader. And here's Augustus Caesar thinking he's calling the shots. He's not. Here he is thinking he's some big shot. He's not. He's really a little piece of lint on the pages of prophecy. God is just using him, like this verse behind me says, because the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And the things that take place, they're not afterthoughts with God. God knows what he's doing, always. You know, I can picture Joseph here as I read chapter 2 of Luke, maybe wringing his hands thinking about the mess he's in, the money he doesn't have, and the more tax he's got to pay, and he's a long ways from home, and he's not even the father of this child, and, and all this stuff is going through his mind. But as Joseph was wringing his hands, God was sitting squarely on his throne, totally in control. God is always in control. And we need to remember that even in the 21st century. So we see, first of all, the potentate's predetermined providence. Secondly, we see a a precious, profound present. A precious, profound present. Back to the gift. Back to our text. 2 Corinthians 9.15 says, Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift, this present. You know, there's a picture of it here. Right here in Luke chapter 2, we read it a moment ago. Notice in verse number 7. And she, Mary, brought forth her firstborn son, Jesus, and wrapped him. Notice those two words. Wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Wrapped him like a gift. You know, it's a very common word used at this time of the year. There's a lot of words floating out there right now, but, but perhaps the most common word is, is gift. And maybe... Maybe tonight you'll open your gifts, or tomorrow you'll open your gifts. By the way, my wife and kids couldn't wait, and we opened some even yesterday. They were gifts from the church folks here. I appreciate gifts. My, my motto is, it's not the thought that counts. It's the present, amen? No, just kidding. It's not the principle of the thing, it's the gift. 
But notice it mentions here that when Jesus Christ was born, Mary wrapped him. Why? It's a picture of the fact he's a gift. We read also in our text, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Think about that word, unspeakable. Here's the Apostle Paul writing probably 60 years after the birth of Jesus Christ, still talking about it, but not able to describe it. Paul probably had a double Ph.D. He was, he was no knucklehead. He had a, a broad vocabulary. He, he wrote most of the books or half the books of the New Testament. But when he comes to describing this gift, there's no word for it. He calls it unspeakable. I mentioned our New Testament being preserved in the Greek, so I looked up that word earlier today, unspeakable. I'm not a Greek scholar nor the son of one, It's just this big, long word, and I didn't even bother trying to memorize it. But the meaning of it means unable to describe. Unable to describe. There are no words. Here's Paul. He's at a loss. He's speechless. You ever been speechless? I've been speechless before. I remember on our what we called our 1,000th Sunday. Here is a church. My pastor was a guest speaker that day, and, and we showed some, some slides of the past on the overhead, and, and afterwards, I, I, I couldn't even talk. And I just remember walking down and looking at my pastor and looking at the pulpit and, and making the eye motion. And you ever been speechless? Paul was speechless. Paul could not put a word to it here. There's, there's nowhere in the Bible this word is found. In fact, there are some who believe this is where it started. Because it wasn't found anywhere even historically before that time, but historically afterwards. So here's Paul. He's a brilliant man, but he's at a loss for words. And 60 years have passed since the event, and he's still overwhelmed just, just describing it. He, he said it's unspeakable. You know, God put the creation of the universe in the Bible, but he's able to describe it. And God put the, the flood, the worldwide flood in the Bible, but he's able to describe it. And God talks about the parting of the Red Sea in, in the Bible, and he, he describes it graphically. No problem there. God describes how Mount Sinai was on fire with smoke and thunder and lightning and, and, uh, and, and, and the, this deafening noise. He describes it. No problem there. He describes when, when the Jordan River was divided. He describes when the sun and the moon stood still there in the days of Joshua. He was able to describe that that sundial that actually went back several degrees during the days of Hezekiah. So there's natural phenomena, and they're, they're described in the Bible. But here it is, the birth of Jesus Christ is beyond words. It is an indescribable, unspeakable gift. It, it defies description, plain and simple. When God came to this earth, when God put on flesh and came down, we call that the incarnation. If you'll flip back just a page here in Luke, notice in chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, and in verse 30, we pick it up. It says, And the angel said unto her, that is Mary, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great. And shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Here we find the incarnation of God. God actually in human form. 
The Bible describes it in a number of places. Here's one of my favorites. John 1.14 says, And the Word, speaking of Christ, was made flesh and dwelt among us, John says, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus Christ became flesh. Romans 1.3 says, His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which is made of the seed of David according to to the flesh. Jesus Christ, our Lord, His Son, God's Son, took on flesh. Here's another one. Philippians 2.7 says, He made Himself of no reputation and took upon Him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Jesus Christ looked like any other Jewish man there. And He laid aside that, that regal royalty that He knew in heaven. He made Himself of no reputation came down to serve, said, I came not to be ministered under, but to minister, to give my life a ransom for many. Took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. It's incredible to me that the one who spoke the world, the worlds, the stars, everything into existence, veiled himself in flesh, as we sung a moment ago, came down to this earth. It's called the Incarnation. Marvelous passage, 1 Timothy 3.16 says, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles. That's us. That's what I'm doing right now. Believed on in the world, received up into glory. Imagine this. God was manifested in the flesh. There are cults who don't believe that. May I say there's no salvation outside of that. Jesus himself said, if you believe not that I am or the I am, you'll die in your sins. The deity of Christ, the paramount doctrine. You must believe that in order to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. And yet there are those who deny that. Well, 1 John, and we won't turn there, but there's a number of verses that clearly tell us that outside of the humanity of Christ, coupled with his deity, there is no salvation. And he wrote it to the agnostics of his day. What you have in Jesus Christ is God in human form. Picture that baby in that stable. That's God. Picture that 12-year-old in the temple teaching the learned doctors. That's God. Picture that carpenter in his 20s working in that wood shop. That's God. Picture the Lord Jesus Christ at age 30 laying aside his his apron and and blowing the sod off off his clothes and, and going out to begin his earthly ministry. That is God. That's God walking the Judean hills. That's God walking the streets of Jerusalem. That's God on earth. It's a precious, profound present. As he traveled throughout Judea, I often wonder if he looked at the the very things he had made, if if he recognized the strata, the rocks, and the cliffs, if, if, if uh, if he looked at that lake there as he walked across it and thought, I made this. I spoke this into existence. The Lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee. He spoke it into existence at one time. He died on a hill that he created. God in flesh. What a precious, profound present. Finally, let's take a look at the pressing personal purpose of it all. So many people get distracted, especially at this time of the year. And they really forget what it's all about. They forget the purpose of it all. They, in fact, they go through life and they never make the personal application of it all. And it is so important. 
I want you to stop and think about a few things. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him dwells everything we find in God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in flesh, bodily. You have the Trinity. You have the Godhead. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The next verse goes on and says, And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. He's at the head of all principality and power. The Bible says we are complete in him. Are you in him? Does he dwell in your hearts by faith? Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? You know, for 20 years of my life, I knew about the nativity story, and and I I had the factual, intellectual knowledge. I, I knew the historical figure, Jesus Christ. But it was all my head. He was, uh, like so many, my, my imaginary friend and no more. That's it. I did not know him personally until I met him in salvation. I've often given the date from this pulpit. I'll never forget it. It was a Thursday night. It was in Crookston, Minnesota. It was on, a, on the outskirts of town in this Baptist church where I called upon the Lord and asked him to save me and was born again the Bible way. March 5th. 1981. I made him my Lord and Savior. King of my life, I crowned him that night. He's dwelt in me since that time. I know he's there. I believe that by faith. We need to be saved. And to every person who's here tonight, I assume you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, but maybe you don't. Have you ever had a time in your life when you received that gift? It wouldn't be a gift if you tried to pay for it, would it? And so many people are trying to earn their way to heaven. They say, well, I've been baptized. I joined that church. Why, I take communion. I've been confirmed. I've done all these things. I'm trying to live a good life. Well, that's all well and fine. But none of that will get you to heaven. Salvation is a gift. What do you do with a gift? You receive it. You don't try and pay for it. You don't try and buy it. It ceases to be a gift if you do. It's not something to be earned. It's a gift. Now, why do we need that, that gift? Why do we need that sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross? Well, turn to Ephesians chapter 2 if you would. The prophets all foretold it. Why did Christ have to come to this earth? That's the big pressing personal purpose of it all. And Isaiah talked about it, and Micah talked about it, and Zechariah talked about it, and and Malachi talked about it. And finally the day came, and and Jesus Christ arrived on the scene, and John the Baptist pointed to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. That's why he was here, to take away the sin of the world, to pay the price for our sin on Calvary's cross. And now he offers eternal life freely to us as a gift. And yet most people are still trying to earn it. Well, we fall short of the glory of God. We'll never be able to earn our way to heaven. We have an issue. We have a problem. And it's described here in Ephesians 1, verse, or, or 2, verse 1. It says, And you hath he quickened or brought to life spiritually who were dead in trespasses and sins. It's talking about when, when you get saved. You're quickened spiritually. You're brought back to life. You who are dead in trespasses and sins, verse 2, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, that's the unsaved, among whom also we all had our conversation or lifestyle in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. You know, there are some ministers, and they'll tell you that we're all God's children. Well, that's something a man made up. That's not something you find in the Bible at all. We're all children of wrath before we get saved. The Bible clearly says so. Now, notice in verse 4, we're in that predicament, but God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. It's kind of like a little glimpse of what we're going to get in verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. There's that gift. And not of works, lest any man should boast. You'll never earn your way to heaven. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. The Bible says by grace. What's that mean? Well, it's another word for gift. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve heaven. It is the gift of God. The only deliverance from our sin was the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. His life here on earth started, it commenced with the stable, the manger. It climaxed with the cross and the resurrection. You know, we, uh, we sung a song earlier. In fact, I'd like you to get a songbook out if you would and turn to page number 429. And I want to show you some words from this song, Hark the Herald. And, and Charles Wesley hit it on the head many, many years ago when he wrote this song. But look at the third verse of this song, Hark the Herald. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings, risen with healing in His wings. Mild He lays his glory by. We read about that in Philippians 2 a moment ago. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Notice this expression. Born to give them second birth. So many people sing that song this time of the year and they don't even realize it's talking about the second birth or being born again as the Lord Jesus Christ called it. And Christ said in John 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This new birth is so important that without it, you'll miss heaven. Plain and simple. This wasn't just another baby born in the Middle East over there. This was God coming to this earth, taking on flesh. And, and, and the first cries of this baby, sadly, were only heard by his mother, who had no one else in attendance there to deliver the baby for. She delivered her own baby. And, and also there's this bewildered husband listening to the cries of this baby. There's angels on the hill telling the shepherd. There's wise men looking at a star who are on their way there. But the world would never, ever be the same. God had come down to this earth. I heard a story about a Persian king who was very kind many, many years ago. And he would often slip out of the palace and he'd put on the rags of a peasant and he'd go mix and mingle with the commoners. And one day he found his way down to this 
dark, damp cellar where he found this peasant down there with hardly anything to eat. And he came in and he, he ate his coarse meal with him and, and sat and, and encouraged him and cheered him up. And, and as he was talking to this common man, somebody came in, recognized the king, bowed down before him and said, It's the king! The common peasant looked over at him astonished. And the king looked over at the peasant expecting to be asked of something. So he said, uh, he said Look, if I can help you out with anything, you let me know. And the commoner said, oh, no. He said, you can give your presence to somebody else. He said, you've given something to me far more valuable. You've given yourself to me. That's what God did when he came to this earth. He gave himself to us. And I ask you, what more could we want? What more could we look for? It's all we need for now. It's all we need for eternity. And what I've had to say is not original. I, I just have no other message than to tell you that the gift has been given. The big question is, have you accepted it? Have you accepted it? You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.